0: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24-monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement to $35 per line connection charge apply. mobilecom Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing from Monday, August 20th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer, and coming up on today's show. We're going to have IAVA in the house a little bit later on. We're going to talk to Steph Mullen. Numbers are her jam, if you weren't aware. We're going to talk to her about numbers. going to talk to her about the latest research that IAVA has done. It's kind of what IAVA is known for, researching what their membership uh, feels, researching what their membership thinks, and also doing research when it comes to legislation, when it comes to the issues facing all veterans, but particularly those who served in Iraq and Afghanistan right there in the organization's title, so you should expect that. And then a very special guest, actually not and them, but before that, a very special guest, Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin is going to join us, and she is going to tell us about some really interesting legislation she's got going on, including an act that would make it easier for veterans to get into flight school and train to become commercial airline pilots going to talk to her about that and so much more one of the two senators from wisconsin one of the 100 senators representing the states that are so united sometimes here in the usa and first uh, a man who i don't believe has ever lived in wisconsin but let's double check jq's ever lived in wisconsin oh yeah you know i've been up there a while I don't know what accent that was, Canadian, I think? Uh, yeah, that was a little pretty, uh, strange brew there. Yeah, that, so, that was. That little was. Bob and Doug McKenzie. Yeah. But, uh, Take off, you hoser. But yeah. you ever been to Wisconsin? No, I have not. I have, but only once, and it was for, and I swear if you besmirch the good name of this sport, one more time, you're going to have some serious problems. I was there for curling camp at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. What do you have to say about them apples? Wisconsin apples. I prefer oranges at this point. Cheese apples. That's, of course, Wisconsin's known for is cheese, not so much apples. But uh, Wisconsin's got some pretty interesting things going on out there. And it's also where uh, if you spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, especially after the first few years, there's a good chance you were in a vehicle that was created in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Most of the MRAPs uh, that came out after the Humvee, uh, when they realized the Humvee was not a suitable vehicle, uh, took them a little bit longer than it should have for Mm -hmm. that. Uh, cost a few lives, the MRAP came into being saved lives. I mean, when you look at the numbers for MRAPs hit by IEDs and fatalities in that and then compare it to uh, the Humvee, Not even uh, a question, whether it's the up-armored Humvee or not. The MRAP was particularly designed to be able to handle uh, explosions from roadside and and pressure plate bombs. A lot more. Uh, Great design for it. And again, created right there in Wisconsin. So we're going to talk to Senator Baldwin about a couple of things. That one that I mentioned is a big one, Jake. And that is working to get vets into flight school. And it's not for veterans who already have flight training. It's not for pilots. Because if you're a military pilot, you're already kind of on your way to becoming um, a commercial airline pilot. It's a lot easier for you. But if you don't have any experience, but you're interested in flying, you want to fly, this is going to make it easier for you to do that if it gets through. And it seems to have quite a bit of support. Is that a job that you think would interest you at all? I'm not saying that you qualify for it. I'm just saying, would you want to be a pilot? Okay, number one, gee, thanks. (laughs) I'm not saying that you do. I wouldn't. I'm not good enough at math. I know that right away. Yeah, well, is there a lot of math involved in flying? Oh, yeah. That's basically all it is. It's it's more about math than anything else. Oh. Calculating fuel reserves, uh, calculating distance, uh, wind speed variables, uh, all sorts of things. If you go to school to become a pilot, you're going to be doing. You may think you're doing uh, Tom Cruise Highway Through the Danger Zone type stuff. No, you're going to be doing a lot of math. <laughs> well, then probably not. It's it, on the surface, it sounds like something I could enjoy doing. Like yeah. I, I, as you're talking about, it, I'm like maybe I could go try that. But uh, honestly, if there's that much, because I I'm just with numbers. They get jumbled yeah. up in my head. Well, I, I can't do complex math. That's a big problem. And you yeah. definitely don't qualify for being a pilot. Um, you also, a lot of people don't know this. If you want to be a commercial airline pilot, you have to pass the voice test where you sit there and, and there's like hours where you have to practice. Uh, if you look over to your left, you'll see a bunch of clouds. Uh, making our way towards uh, San Diego today. The, uh, uh, it's much, uh, very have important. A good time. Oh, that's you incredibly a, important. Uh, that's basically uh, the telltale sign that your pilot knows what he's doing or yeah. she's doing. When they have that, uh, hey everybody, going to have a great flight today. Welcome. And then when they and then when you arrive, of course, Usually it's them. Sometimes it is the uh, the flight attendants uh, who get up and say, uh, I want to welcome you to Chicago. Current temperature is uh, 43 degrees. Winds at uh, 85 miles an hour and uh, get off my plane. That's what I would say if I were a pilot. Was that, was that uh, from the S- SNL Skit Total Bastard Airlines? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Bye bye. Or uh, you could be like, uh, what was it, the Twilight Zone where um, William Shatner looked out the window and they There's little, something on the wing. Could, could you be a pilot? I bet you'd, well, you'd. Wouldn't be a pilot for long if you did it, but If you are like, I, I don't want to alarm anybody, but uh, if you look outside the window, you'll notice gremlins tearing apart the uh, right wing of this aircraft, and we're uh, going to do everything we can to get it down on the ground, but supernatural <laughs> beings tearing it apart, uh, not something we train for. Uh, do what it can. Back in a moment. Bam. Anyway, it, it's a really interesting program looking to help vets get into an industry that's actually struggling. They're having trouble finding pilots kind of in the same way that the military is having trouble finding recruits. I mean, there are just not enough people that qualify. And there are people within the military that are not pilots, but that would make good pilots. They may not have thought about it at the time. But if this new legislation gets through, uh, this legislation proposed by Tammy Baldwin, uh, and it's bipartisan legislation, she's not the only one. She's a Democrat. She has a co-sponsoring Republican on it. All the legislation that we're going to talk about with her today, bipartisan, and that is something that we like to see. So you'll get to hear that coming up in our very next segment, which will start at about 8.45 or so. Uh, If you're watching on Facebook... Yeah, Now you understand We record this segment Before the the other two air And if you're not watching On Facebook Well guess what You can You can see what we're doing In the studio You can watch me drink From my coffee cup With stickers of Organizations that have been On the show before Like Assault Forward And the Veteran Enhancement Project And so on And uh, just get a little Live look into what's going on In the studio Before it even airs On the radio And on the internet And all that good stuff So go to At Connecting Vets On Facebook Give us a follow You can also uh, There's a setting Where you can can be notified anytime a page that you follow goes live, so you can do that. And we'll be here every Monday through Friday at 7.15 a.m. Speaking of connecting vets, if you go to the website, you're going to see some pretty interesting stories on there, including one about a traveling Vietnam wall. They just had an opening ceremony in Warren, Ohio. It's a three-quarter size replica of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in DC that's now traveling around the country. It's there, uh, was there in Warren, Ohio, up until yesterday, and then moved along. The Vietnam War Memorial is one of the most impressive memorials. It's 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 an incredible design. It's very subtle. It's uh it, it's it's something that of course it's kind of a, a cultural touchstone in the United States now. I mean, how many movies have you seen that begin or end with someone reading the names at the wall or people talking about it? Documentaries and all that stuff. I mean, just look at uh the Vietnam War, the recent PBS documentary from Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. It, it is this this thing that. All of us know about, but a relatively small amount of people ever get to see. And you know what's interesting, Jake? What's that? I haven't been. I've been down here for over a year. I have yet to get to the V You didn't come Long with us Memorial. when we did the reading of the names? No, I wasn't available that oh. day when you guys went and did that. Yeah. Uh, I had, uh, I think I was out of town or had a child care thing or something going on there where I wasn't able to do that. So you should go. Yeah, I, I absolutely should. And I have no excuse living in a relative close vicinity to Washington, D.C. And of course, that's where we broadcast from. We're you know, just a, a few blocks away from the mall. So there's really no excuse for me not having been there. I've been to quite a few of the others. Uh, I spoke at the uh the first uh, annual day of remembrance or annual day of not remembrance but annual day of tribute to the uh, uh paralyzed veterans for life memorial which is a beautiful memorial that a lot of people don't know about that's just off the mall but I-, I haven't been to it and i have no excuse because i'm close to here and i'm going to go see it uh, before this summer is out maybe before this week is out i don't know but there are people around the country who just don't have the opportunity to come to Washington, D.C., now this memorial is traveling around the country and giving people an opportunity to see it, and not just, you know, a little tiny replica. This is three-quarters of the actual size, and it's a pretty big memorial. It's pretty awesome that people are going to get a chance to see this, and and it's not like you can move uh, the Lincoln Monument or the Washington or Lincoln Memorial or the Washington Monument or any of those other ones around. This one, it kind of makes sense that they're able to bring it around there. Yeah. And it's really cool to do that because you got a lot. Remember, a lot of the Vietnam veterans, they're getting up there in age. Yep. They may not be able to travel across the country to go visit the Vietnam wall. So this is really good to, to be able to let them visit and sort of pay tribute to their fallen friends or to yeah. you know someone that they knew in the war. If you served in Vietnam, you are uh, at a minimum around 60 years old. And there are people, of course, who are much older. Uh, there are fewer Vietnam veterans every day, just like there are from from World War II. Of course, there's no World War One veterans left. Korean War, there are fewer veterans every day. Each war. I mean, that's the way that it goes. But, of course, as people get older, that process speeds up. And, uh, you know, it is good that people who haven't had the opportunity to get there but may have wanted to, especially those Vietnam veterans who haven't been able to uh, to get to the wall in D.C., having the opportunity to see this three-quarter size replica of the memorial as it travels around the country is just fantastic. You can go to our website for more on that story. And you can also... Um, you can also go, of course, to the Vietnam Veterans War Memorial and look at where it's traveling around the country. They have a schedule of where it's going. Uh, so if it's coming near you, highly recommend you go and check it out. Of course, we've had the Vietnam Veterans War Memorial uh, folks on the show before. And the Vietnam veterans have done so much for the, the the generations of veterans that have followed, in large part because of how they were treated when they came home. And their Their current, uh, and and since then, their, their ethos has been never again will anyone be treated the same way that we were. And they've done a fantastic job in that. And we, of the current generations of veterans, owe them more than I can say. I mean, it's just, it's incredible what they've been able to do. Looking a little bit further back in history, World War II. And Jake, I'm telling you, this is a crazy story in and of itself. And here's a little odder thing. The other night, probably last, I don't know, Sunday or Monday, I was just browsing around online, started reading about uh, the the fight that took place in Alaska between the United States and the Japanese in World War II, just because I felt like it, like I wanted to look at it. So I'm looking at all these stories up there. I'm reading about the history of it. A lot of people don't realize that there were... Uh, There there were battles that took place on American soil. It's at the very tip of the Aleutian Islands, essentially, Sitka Island and a couple other places. If you ever watch The Deadliest Catch, it's like pretty much as far out as they go, those little islands. That's where Japanese Imperial forces uh, started trying to make emplacements. The United States Navy and the Army went and, and did what they could to get them out of there and eventually did get them out. But during... My reading there, I led, I learned about a Navy ship called the USS Abner Reed that had the stern of the ship, the back of it, essentially blown off during uh, one of the battles over there. The ship survived, was able to make it back into port, eventually got back down to Bremerton, Washington, where it was refitted. It got back into the fight, went over to the Pacific Theater, and then was sunk uh, off the coast of the Philippines, I believe it was. Really effective. A- Fascinating story. And this is a ship that could have gone down in Alaska. The crew saved it. 71 of them didn't make it. So I'm reading about this a week and a half ago or something like that guess what, Jake? What's that, Eric? They found the stern of the USS (laughs) Abner-Reed in the waters off of Alaska. So this thing that I was reading about, just this weird coincidence, I was reading about it on my own, because that's kind of what I do for fun, is read about history. The fact that they've found this thing around the same time, just very strange coincidence, but also very cool. And they're going to leave it there. They're not going to bring it up. There's no need to bring it up. It's going to remain as a memorial to the 71 souls who were lost uh, uh, on the, the occasion of the Abner Reed uh, losing its stern. The fascinating thing about this, I think is it kind of, when you read about the Abner Reed and when I was reading about it a week and a half ago or so, you learn how different things were in world war II compared to every other war. As far as the amount of warfare that was taking place, the speed, this ship was commissioned in like 1942 43 actually gets out there, I think, in, oh, something like March or April, if I'm, uh, if I'm correct. Let me see if I can click on this and get it. Okay, uh, assume patrol duties on 4 May 1943, and then uh, August of 1943 is when she lost her stern. Three months in. To the ship's lifetime. It loses its stern, could have gone down. Again, goes in, they repair it, they get it back in. August 1944, a year and three months after the ship uh, became active, it was sunk off the coast of uh, the Philippines. So, I mean, this is, uh that's something we don't think about these days. When's the last time we lost, I mean, truly lost a Navy ship? Yeah, the coal bombing, and you can think of some others uh, going back. You have to go back to I don't even know, I think World War II for the yeah. last time that we truly lost a ship because in the Korean War, there weren't large-scale naval battles. Even when the Chinese got involved, their Navy then and now is still not anything that that wants to go up against the United States Navy. Uh, you had the forest in Vietnam where essentially a rocket went off from an aircraft, set another aircraft on fire, and uh, firefighting back then wasn't what it is today with the Navy, so uh, it eventually became this this horrifying event that they teach you about at Navy boot camp where they were putting um, aqueous film-forming foam, AFFF, on the fire, which what it does is smothers the fire, doesn't allow oxygen to get to it. Then another hose team came through with water and washed off the film-forming foam, so the fire went back up. Magnesium fires, they didn't push the, the aircraft over the side as quickly as they should have. Even then, even with magnesium fires burning down through most of the decks on the forest stall, the ship survived. I mean, it was towed back in, and and I can remember 20-plus years ago seeing it uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, I think it was. It was actually there. The, uh, the ship was still afloat at that point. But in World War II, man, there were a lot of ships that went down. There were also a lot of ships that went into production, and then— we didn't have any use for shortly thereafter. I mean, we've never had warfare on the scale of world war two, thankfully since then. And I hope and pray that we never will, but really just one of those interesting things where, you know, you'll be surfing around around online and read about something or somebody like, let's say some TV show comes up and this happened to me the other day. They're talking about rebooting small wonder. Do You remember small wonder. That's the show, about the little girl robot. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Vicky. The little girl robot. They're talking about rebooting Small Wonder. They're talking about rebooting everything from the 80s. I don't know, but I hope that if they do, they can give a job to the little boy from the show. His real name was uh, Jerry Supranian or something like that. Because the last I heard a few years ago, he was basically the real-life version of that Chris Farley character from Saturday Night Live in that he was living in a van under a bridge down by the river. And said that he had lost all his money and that a stripper took all his money. It was just a sad story. But I I remember right before it was announced, I was like, I wonder what the girl from Small Wonder is doing now. And I looked her up and she's uh, a nurse someplace and doesn't really talk about her acting anymore. Doesn't get involved in it. But you ever have anything happen like that where you're looking up something online and then within like a week or two, it ends up making the news? I can think of off the top of my head. That's unacceptable. You that, See, this is why you can't be a pilot. Pilots would be able to do that. Speaking of pilots, we're going to talk to Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin in our next segment, and we're going to talk about some legislation she's introduced that's looking to get veterans into flight school, make that process easier for them as they go into their post-military careers. And it's for people who don't have flight experience. It's for people who just, hey, you know, flying the friendly skies is something they've always wanted to do. Well, guess what? Now they're going to get to do it under this act. So check out that segment with Tammy Baldwin coming up next. Senator Tammy Baldwin, I should say. Here's an aircraft-related story, and this is something that uh, I remember because I was working in news at the time. Do you remember the former National Guardsman who showed up at the, uh, what was it Miami? No, Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport I think flew there from Alaska with a stop in Minnesota or something, had a gun checked when he got there, took out the gun, loaded it, and started shooting people. No, I yeah, don't see. see, These things happen, um, and we forget about them. I mean, it's just the way that it goes, unless you work in this. This was in January 2017, he killed five people, wounded six, told the FBI first that he was under some sort of mind control, that people were, uh, you know, sending signals to him, and then after that, said that, nah, just kidding, I did this for ISIS. He's been diagnosed since as a schizophrenic. But it's something that some people consider a terrorist attack. Uh, and, of course, let's let's very briefly talk about, yes, anything that's terrifying is terrifying. doesn't make it a terrorist act. It's what the motive is. That's yeah. what terrorist attacks are. I mean, it's a simple thing to me, I would think. But some people think, well, if it's terrifying, it's a terror. No, terrorist act means that you did it for a specific reason, a political reason. This guy claimed to have done it on behalf of ISIS. Um People now say like, well, it's an unfounded claim because he never trained with ISIS or anything like that. Well, you know what? That's kind of how ISIS operates outside of Iraq and Syria. Of course, now they're basically uh, pushed back into one small area. And uh, I think some of our fellows may be over there doing some things to make sure that they stay in that small area until they are all gone. Um, In Europe, it's a little bit different because there's no over-the-ocean traveling to get to Europe. You have people uh, coming in as refugees who, in fact, are not refugees but the people who created the refugee crisis. There's a story in Germany this past weekend of a uh, a young Yazidi woman. They were uh, an ethnic minority group uh, in Iraq who were – uh, just basically enslaved by ISIS, uh, the the men were killed, the women were enslaved. This woman and her family eventually made it out and got to Germany. She was at a supermarket in Germany and saw one of her ISIS captors while she was over there. So a little bit of a different issue over there in Europe. But this guy claiming that he did it on behalf of ISIS, he is a National Guard veteran. He did serve in Iraq. Um, I'm gonna bet, and I put probably a hundred bucks on this. He's not a combat veteran, because if he was, it would say that in the story, and it just says he's an Iraq veteran, which is something that kind of rubs me uh, the wrong way, where, you know, everyone who went over there, and I was not a an infantry soldier or anything like that. Yeah, I went outside the wire fairly regularly, but it was to document what the real military people, the combat soldiers, were doing out there. If you were, you know, sorting mail at Bagram Air Base, or if you were, uh, you know, serving food inside the green zone— I. Everyone appreciates your service. But when you just say Iraq veteran, I think people automatically assume that this is someone who was out there getting shot at every day. And, you know that that maybe put him in this frame of mind. There's nothing saying that he was any of those things. So you, you you assume that they're not because it's only a small fraction of the military that are actually those combat troops and Marines and sailors and airmen. While the vast majority of us are the people who are most of the time inside the wire support people, making sure that those people have what they need to do what they want. Um, so that's an interesting thing that just pops to me in this article. It's like when you... uh. When you, uh, well, that story that we had, and uh, the story's gotten a second life because it was picked up down in Texas uh, by a newspaper down there of the uh, veteran who was deported, the guy who had the cocaine that he was trying to sell to undercover yeah. agents, people, it, we, we, we wrote about it, I wrote about it because there were news stories that seemed to paint this guy as some sort of hero and then sort of... Uh, said that what he did wasn't that bad because, oh, it was less than 100 grams of cocaine, which is still a lot of cocaine. Did some research because some things in the story just didn't sound right to us. Uh, You as a former Army drill sergeant, uh, me as someone who deployed, there were things that just didn't add up, and we looked into it and found, oh, okay, this guy was like a mechanic, and no, he didn't deploy twice. He deployed once with one month of R&R leave in the middle, and he was not uh, you know a combat veteran or anything like that where people were saying, like, this guy it's just one of those interesting things where Afghanistan and Iraq veteran majority of people who have that status, like myself, we are not the infantry. We are not the special forces. We are not out there shooting at people and taking shots each and every day of the week or living out in these little fobs in the middle of nowhere where uh, you never know what can happen. It's just you and 40 or 50 or closest friends uh, defending an area. So it just popped into my mind when I saw this story uh, of this gentleman, uh, well, gentleman, of this monster who murdered five people at an airport. Says he did it on behalf of ISIS uh, and all sorts of other things. Well, he has actually now been sentenced and he will spend the rest of his life in prison. Thankfully, thankfully, too many times we see people taking someone else's life. And then I see the news story saying, like, oh, they got 15 years, 15 years. The other person didn't get any more time left. I mean, it's it's upsetting when you see stuff like that. And in a case like this, it was high profile, even though a lot of people have forgotten about it. It's good to see that he will not be able to wander the streets at any point again in the future. Another thing I want to touch on quickly before we move on, and we've got an interview with Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin coming up next. Vote Vets, who we've had on the show before, has filed a lawsuit to sue over the VA, quote, shadow rulers. You wrote a story on this. The three guys, the three guys who are... uh, There's a lawyer, a doctor, and the head of the Marvel Entertainment Entertainment Group who have apparently been giving a lot of advice and a lot of advice that's been uh, taken by some to be orders at the VA over the last couple of years. VoteVets has filed a lawsuit against that. Um, To me, and we're going to reach out to them and see if they'd like to come on and talk about this this week, but to me, looking at it from face value – Seems more like a a publicity ploy. Yeah, symbolic. There's nothing illegal about... The president can get advice from whoever he wants. Uh, he can have people submit advice to those organizations if the organizations take it. If there was anything official in writing that these guys have full authority and blah, 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 but I don't think you're ever going to find that. I think if anything, there may have been like a handshake agreement or something like that. Uh, Vote Vets has filed a lawsuit there. They've also... Uh, they're going to do a 5K run in D.C., apparently in honor of the canceled military parade, which they're very happy about. Uh, Vote Vets is pretty honest about who they are. They're a political organization. They do not like uh, the president of the United States of America and kind of do whatever they can to you know, thumb their nose at him or uh, whatever they can. So, yeah, it's an interesting story, and we'll reach out to, uh, to Vote Vets and see if they're interested in coming on and talking about that. Senator Tammy Baldwin, I know, is interested in coming on because, well, she's coming up next. I'm going to talk to her about some interesting legislation that she's introduced that may help veterans get jobs, including as commercial airline pilots. The Morning Briefing, Monday Edition. Eric Dame JQ's back after this.
1: We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day.
0: Online and all over social media Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's what we do, and I'll tell you why we do it. Each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform. And just as importantly, we know what it's like to have taken it off that last time. The struggles that can follow after that. The concerns you have as you move from a military career to, well, a non-military career, hopefully. There's a lot going on in the veteran world, and we're covering it all at ConnectingVets.com. So be sure to check out the website 30, 40 times a day. And follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest does a job that only 100 people in the United States do at any given time. What is that job? United States Senator. She represents the great state of Wisconsin. She's here to talk to us about some interesting veteran-focused initiatives that she's been a part of recently. And she is Senator Tammy Baldwin. Senator, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting me, to.
0: I want to ask you first is there any connection for Tammy Baldwin to the military besides the veterans, of course, that you serve who are uh, residents of your state? Is there a family or friend or any relation to the military for you personally?
2: Well, my uncle served in uh, Vietnam and uh, has, uh, as the years pass, opened up more and more about his experience there. Mm. And um, I do some genealogical research and I did have a, uh, distant cousin who served in the Civil War Wow! Um, and I, this is getting a little far afield but um, we have preserved a letter that he wrote to his family. He kind of took off from home. Uh, he was from Baraboo, Wisconsin without telling his parents. He was not yet 18 mm. and he wrote to them and said he would send his, um, his pay back so that they could hire another person for the farm. And he didn't make it. Mm. Uh, he died shortly after um, uh, joining uh, the uh, the effort. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to look at it from all perspectives.
0: It certainly is. And to look back historically at people who you have something in common with, and that being the blood that runs through your veins, who were involved in something that may be only in the abstract, something that you think about, like the Civil War. But there were American connections to that and right down to your family.
2: Absolutely. And of course, I work with veterans, (laughs) uh, both in terms of my colleagues, but also in my office. It is so valuable to have a veteran's perspective Uh, a voice in the crafting of legislation, and in fact, uh, Hill Vets is a program that I know you're very familiar Uh, with. Yes, I am. (laughs) And uh, uh, joining us in the studio is Alicia Guffey, who is a Hill Vet who's working in my office.
0: And now Alicia will sing us the national anthem. Just putting her on the spot. Of course not. We're not going to ask her to do that, but that's wonderful to hear. And that is. Something that's a bit of an issue that we've talked about with Hill Vets, it's kind of their mission is to get more veterans onto the staffs of members of Congress. Because if you look at the numbers of who's serving in Congress, between the House and the Senate, actually veterans are uh, representing, represented by a higher number in Congress than they are in the active population. But then when you look at congressional staffs, veterans only make up something like 2 to 3%, I think were the last numbers I saw. Is that something you'd like to see change, to see more people who've served being able to give input to the people who make the decisions regarding the military?
2: Absolutely. And I would add that when you're looking at either a House staff or a Senate staff, you're not only talking about the formation of policy in Washington, D.C., but we have staff back in our states who serve individuals who call up and say, hey, my... uh, My case seems to be tied up in knots in this bureaucracy. What can you do? Uh, And it's often, it's great when that's a veteran who's answering the phone and getting to work to untangle the red tape or whatever it is they need to do to have a champion on your side who also has walked in your shoes
0: is great. It certainly is. And we're speaking with Senator Tammy Baldwin, who represents the state of Wisconsin in the United States Senate. We're going to talk about some veterans issues uh, that she's been heavily involved in, including the American Aviator Act, which is truly fascinating. Before we get to that Election season is coming up and there are a lot of veterans running for uh, you know jobs in national uh, positions in Congress. Is that something you're happy to see to see on both sides of the aisle? I mean, we've got people like Dan Crenshaw running for Congress in Texas, Ken Harbaugh running for Congress in Ohio, Republican, Democrat, but two guys who uh, have both served the country and done amazing things. And they're just the tip of the iceberg. How do you feel about seeing so many veterans on the ticket this year?
2: I'm very excited about it, and I can also look back to my experience. I I served in the House of Representatives prior to serving in the Senate, and the value um, that veterans who ran for Congress and won um, and then had the opportunity to lead on really very consequential issues. Um, And uh, so the more the better. As far as I'm concerned,
0: I, I well, most people that we talk to seem to agree on that. We'll see if the voters do come November, but it's good to see that there. I think at least it's good to see that there are many veterans who care enough to get involved. And as people who've who've shown through their service, they can be proactive and get things done. It's kind of the kind of people that we want on Capitol Hill. You're getting some things done, including the American Aviator Act, which is what I first reached off reached out to your office about. And then, of course, found out about several other things that you're doing. But first, let's talk about the American Aviator Act. Exactly, what is the act about, and what is the goal of it?
2: Well, it has multiple goals. But we, uh, you said at the outset of the show, um, there are sometimes uh, struggles, uh, sort of getting back into civilian professions, civilian life after um, after service. And this is one of those sort of win-win-win situations. Um, because uh, we have a severe uh, projected shortage in commercial airline pilots. A lot of folks are reaching their retirement age, and so the federal government, um, from that perspective, is looking at what can we do uh, to make sure that uh, aviation remains robust and safe and the best people in those jobs. Um, The uh, uh, schools that provide training not just like your general aviation learn how to fly schools but the ones that really prepare people for a career track in commercial aviation are very interested in reaching out to veterans making them a part of um, their programs there's few of them and so part of my communication initially was with one of the schools in Wisconsin who has a partnership with the local airport Um, There's a small regional airlines there, and uh, they wanted some help. I would also say that um, this is based on, um, I think, a pretty successful study of the promise that this idea holds called forces to flyers. Hmm. And so if it's been studied uh, by this administration, um, we thought we should start a pilot project, yes, Pun intended.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a job that not only are there openings in, but it's also a job that's just pretty darn cool. Is this something that is aimed more at military aviators or people who don't have any experience with flight?
2: Uh, The latter. Uh, Military aviators can get a pretty expedited path into uh, commercial airline uh, aviation. Um, And so they really do follow a very different track. Uh, But this is aimed at military veterans who have not had prior training, uh, but would like to uh, look at and uh, settle on a career in commercial aviation.
0: That's something that I think will perk up a lot of ears that, you know, it goes to show just because you were a supply clerk or a tanker like Jake or a journalist like me in the military doesn't mean that's what you have to do when you get out. There are plenty of options available to you and flying the friendly skies. I think that may be someone's tagline, so I'm not sure if I can use it, but it's certainly something that I think will appeal to a lot of veterans. Where do we stand on this act as far as uh, you know, how close we are to people actually getting into flight schools on it? Is that already happening or is that still down the road?
2: It's down the road. Um, this legislation was introduced um, earlier this summer. It is bipartisan. I am proud to have worked with uh, Senator Hoven from North Dakota uh, in offering this legislation uh, and... We are looking very closely at an opportunity, a legislative opportunity that lies ahead. Um, every few years, we reauthorize the Federal Aviation Administration, mm. and the current authorization expires at the end of September. So we are working very hard to make this legislation a part of that larger act, uh, basically uh, to get it through as quickly as we can so that this can be, um, you know, the pilot program can start up.
0: Is it something that has a, a huge amount of support? And it's interesting to hear you say it's bipartisan, and it seems that veterans issues is where you see the most bipartisan uh, cooperation. What's the What's the feeling, been from your fellow senators and members of Congress uh, on this legislation?
2: Well, I think that uh, a couple of things I'd point out. One is Um, it is very bipartisan to support uh, career opportunities for veterans um, who served our country and are now back at home. And so that gets um, almost universal um, support. Uh, But I think perhaps uh, members of the United States Senate and the House have a special view on aviation because most of us commute by plane Every week. (laughs) Now, there are a few who live really close by to Washington, D.C., and come by train or car or walk. No, no one walks. But but, uh, we see the aging of the commercial airline uh, workforce, uh, the pilots in particular. Um, We see the needs there. And we are very committed to safety first all the time. And so this just is something that I think should capture um a lot of support as it goes through the process
0: I, we've talked to other senators on the show senator Ernst, senator purdue we've talked to them about uh, the the difficulty of traveling back and forth and it's interesting that you mentioned that that all of the travel kind of gives you a unique insight into uh the airlines having that did it kind of come to you one day while you were sitting on a plane did were you sitting there and thinking <laughs> you know who might be a good person to replace this pilot well um actually, the, um, the the
2: way it came up was early discussions uh, when I was first beginning my service in the United States Senate and getting to know uh, the academic institutions all around the state, um, getting to know about aviation around the state, uh, uh, and um, recognizing that some of our uh, colleges and technical uh, uh, colleges in particular, offered flight instruction and and one in particular offers instruction um, uh, for a commercial uh, airline pilot. One of the things we want to make sure is that this isn't you know just um, getting uh, getting a a pilot's license but that this is um, instruction with uh, a real connection to the industry so that um, you're not just getting a degree and then shopping around that you are actually going to have a very clear career path if you stick to it.
0: So the airlines might actually be involved in this as well from their end because they could see it as a potential pipeline for them?
2: They are so uh, seriously concerned about their pipeline, as are so many employers right now, um, which provides us opportunities to really step up and connect uh, highly skilled people um, with those opportunities.
0: We're speaking with Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, and we've been talking about the American Aviator Act, which she introduced earlier this year. It's not the only veteran-focused thing that you're working on, though. I know that, in fact, the Boosting Rates of American Veterans Employment Act is another one, again, bipartisan. You and Senator Tom Tillis uh, introduced this one. Tell us a little bit about that act and what what, what it's aiming to address.
2: And the, it, it, it's, um, the acronym is the BRAVE Act, um, So we have long had a system in uh, the country which appropriately recognizes um, veteran-owned businesses and prefers them in certain, uh, for example, contracting with the VA. Hmm. But we have not had the same sort of focus and recognition to employers who may or may not be uh, veteran-owned businesses who really make it a point to recruit and retain and train veterans. So you could be, uh, you know, you could have a business that has an exceptional uh, rate of, um, of, of veterans working in the, uh, in the enterprise and not get any preferred status when you're bidding for something, uh, a service, uh, or uh, products that you wanna sell to the government and the VA in particular. We thought the VA would be the best um, role model for this, um, this effort, and so uh, Senator Tillis and I um, have, really, uh, have really tried to uh, uh, push this idea that you will be rewarded if you uh, make an effort to recruit and retain veteran
0: workers. It's also interesting to note that we, we've we talked to several corporations, including big corporations like Hilton Hotels, who pledged to hire a number of veterans a couple years ago and said, you know, it was a great PR move and everything. They hired them, and it turned out they're some of the best workers they've ever had. So now they've increased the number, and they're like, hey, we want to hire more of you guys. Get out there. Do you think that the incentive can be just an inroad to really opening up the floodgates when employers realize that veterans – tend to show up on time, tend to be where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be, and tend to do the job until it's complete and do it the right way.
2: Absolutely. And I will say in Wisconsin, I'm sure in many other states, we are facing a skills gap and uh, not only a skills gap, but a worker shortage. And we need to connect the people who are motivated and ready to learn on the job uh, and are going to have the soft skills also that employers require um, this is such a great opportunity you know we had a recent recess week where i had the opportunity to travel all throughout the state of wisconsin having all sorts of different stops and discussions and roundtables but one of the businesses that i visited was a veteran-owned business um, called uh Oh, let me get it right. The Applied Fab and Machining, Mm. AFM. Uh, This veteran is an incredible entrepreneur who really started, it was basically him, and now he has 10 employees. So, this is a very small business that we're talking about, not Hilton Hotels, right? um, uh, You know, an international workforce. Um, He has found some incredible opportunities to also work with larger businesses that do work with the government and that employ veterans. Um, and in his case, one of them is Oshkosh defense, Oshkosh corporation, uh, where they make some of the metal parts that are placed in the vehicles that, uh, Oshkosh defense makes. So it's a great, um, uh, opportunity. But again, he's been recognized as a veteran owned business. He wants to hire more veterans. He has several, um, it has been a great opportunity for him to get a really uh, skilled workforce. They do great at what they do, but he wants more. And part of his the discussion uh, with me was, how do I find out where they are? The handoff oftentimes, if you will, as people head home, uh, it's not like there's a notice published in the newspaper that says, right. welcome home. Uh, and, and so he's really looking at additional um, additional ways to locate uh, veterans so that he can offer them opportunities if they're interested.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned Oshkosh, which, of course, we all know from Oshkosh bagosh when we were kids. That's pretty much all I wore when I was little. It's also uh, a big manufacturing center for military vehicles, as you mentioned. The military, uh, the mine repellent uh, armor personnel carrier was uh, was basically created in Wisconsin. Yes. There are a lot of veterans, of course, from Wisconsin. Let's talk about your home state for a little bit. What do you think the state is of veterans in the state of Wisconsin? How do you think the veteran community is doing in your home state?
2: Well, I would say, um, first of all, a, a company like Oshkosh and like uh, Applied Fab and Machining really do make a point to um, uh, hire returning veterans. And, um, and I have to say, just to dwell on Oshkosh for a few more minutes, that um, you know when they were stepping up at a time that um the vehicles that our troops had um were not um necessarily protecting them against emerging threats um now uh, well-known threats um the pride of those workers in knowing that they were um serving our active military in such a um you know it was a huge ramp up in a very short time and They were so proud to be able to do that and play a role. And um, I think that is reflective of Wisconsin's work ethic and the things that we hold dear in our state. Um, Wisconsin doesn't have a lot of um, military installations, uh, so we don't have a lot of active military presence. Um, We are a big guard state. We are a big reserve state. And um, so another way in which employers uh, step up is by recognizing uh, that uh, their employees, if they are in the guard or reserve, need their um, uh, need their partnership. And so, we're very proud of how uh, employers in Wisconsin have stood by their garden reserve members uh, and um, and and recognize the sacrifice that those workers are making. I. We certainly have struggles in Wisconsin uh, uh, for veterans um, still uh, working on ending homelessness mm. among veterans. Uh, I've seen such great projects around the state of Wisconsin um, and making sure that uh, in the handoff between active military service and uh, veteran status um, that, they're, um, that they get the top-notch health care uh, services that they have earned and that they deserve for serving our country.
0: We've been speaking with Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin about the American Aviator Act, which she introduced, the BRAVE Act, which she introduced. There's a lot more going on. I know there's an apprenticeship program. It looks like we're running out of time, so I don't think we'll be able to get into it. But if people want to find out more about these acts, if people want to talk to uh, their senators, their Congress members about these acts and getting them moved forward, how do you recommend they go about doing that? What's the best way to reach somebody like Tammy Baldwin?
2: Well, I would say lots of different ways, and that's what's great about a democracy and um, having representatives and senators who come home and, and are um, uh, hopefully making themselves available. So certainly writing and calling and emailing is, uh, you know, traditional, they are traditional ways of reaching out and sharing what is on your mind and what is, um, you know, what you want to say. Um, there are people like Alicia who takes the next step and is with Hill Vets and, and actually gets a job in um, an office and adding her voice to the creation of policy. In between there, there's opportunities to invite your elected representatives, uh, if you have a business, for for example, to come and see it. If you're running a program that serves veterans, uh, have us over. Some of the most rewarding visits that I've ever had in my public service career is uh, is meeting with veterans who are serving other veterans. Um, that varies so much, but I, uh, I think of one group that is helping uh, veterans who have been homeless and are getting securing their first uh, uh, living situation, uh, first housing, and furnishing it entirely on donated goods from other veterans and civilians.
0: Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. And on behalf of the veteran veteran community, thank you for the legislative work that you're doing on behalf of those of us who've worn the uniform. We all do appreciate it, and it does not go unnoticed. Thank you. You're listening to The Morning Briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. And again, our thanks to Senator Tammy Baldwin of the great state of Wisconsin for coming in and joining us. Some really interesting legislation going on there. Again, that aviation one in particular I like that idea, you know? This whole broadcasting thing, this whole broadcasting thing doesn't work out, then maybe I take to the friendly skies. Maybe you get to hear this voice over the intercom on your flight as you're making your way across the country. Uh, Yeah, it's a possibility. It's not a likelihood, but it's going to be more possible if this legislation goes through. And it's something that, you know, who didn't want to be a pilot when they were a little kid? Think about it. Whatever your job was in the military, you may have loved it, but... When you saw the Flyboys taking off or streaming overhead, oh man, that's something I always wanted to do a little bit more of. I got to fly quite a bit in my military career, but most of it was sent sitting in a seat or strapped into the side of a C-130 or a Black Hawk or something like that. The guys who actually got to do the flying, oh, that seemed like such a cool job. Plus, they also got to wear just the coolest shades, right? Well, those folks who fly for the military, those men and women, they are able to get out and kind of have a direct path to the airline industry or being a cargo pilot or a private helicopter pilot or something like that. This program is for those of us who didn't have that career path in the military. It's for those of us who get out and think, you know what, maybe flying is what I was supposed to do. So as she said, you can reach out to your Senator, your Congress member, Make sure that they're aware of, you know, your support for that and any other veteran legislation. It's pretty easy to contact your representatives. You might not think so, but I guarantee you it is. Getting Senator Baldwin to come on the show is as simple as sending an email to the the press secretary over there, but reaching them for your reasons as a constituent, that's pretty easy as well. Remember, Google is your friend. All right, you're listening to The Morning Briefing. Coming up next, Steph Mullen from IAVA. Going to talk to her about numbers, as they are her jam. (laughs) We'll be back right after this with more of The Morning Briefing.
1: Helping military veterans stay connected.
0: We make it easy.
1: We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day.
0: Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Hey, have you checked out ConnectingVets.com? Well, you absolutely should many times a day, as many as you can without getting in trouble from the boss. I mean, if they're like, hey, I'm supposed to be working on the spreadsheets here, Houlihan. How come you're always on this ConnectingVets.com? Uh, you know, Houlihan, whoever that is, tell them, hey, I'm just trying to find out the latest and greatest news and information and benefits available to veterans because that's all we have on ConnectingVets.com. And you can be kept up to date on what's going on that site most easily by following us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is a research director for one of the largest veteran organizations in the country. Numbers, they're kind of her thing. I think that's the catchphrase. No, 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 wait numbers are her jam and she is Steph Mullen from IAVA. Steph, good morning. How are you today?
1: Good morning. Happy Monday. I'm doing well.
0: Happy Monday to you too. Did you have a good weekend?
1: I did. uh, I got a little sunburned. I did the uh, rookie mistake and didn't put on my sunscreen. I have to. I'm a
0: pale guy. So if I go outside without sunscreen, it's not good.
1: I know, I thought I was just going to be out for a little bit, and now I look like a little tomato.
0: There you go. Steph Tomato Mullins. (laughs) Numbers are her jam. Also tomatoes. Um, (laughs) So we're here to talk, of course, about veterans' issues, particularly as they relate to the uh, the research that you do over at IAVA. You're the one heading up the old research department over there, and research is a large part of what IAVA does. Basically, checking with their membership to find out what they think, and based on what they think, that's typically what leads IAVA to take a stance on something. So if the membership feels strongly about something, you guys take a stance one way or the other. If they say they don't care about it, IAVA doesn't particularly care about it. That's how these organizations work as I drop my phone here as I'm trying to look at it. But uh, a number of things that we want to talk about, and here's one that I've heard this talked about, but I have absolutely no idea what in the heck it means. Military one-source expansion. Explain to me exactly what that is, and then let me know, you know, what you know about it and how people are looking at it.
1: Awesome. So let's take a step back and talk about what is Military OneSource. Right. Because I think there's a lot of misnomer out there, and it's really a website, database, resource, and access point for all things that you may need uh, as you're transitioning out or even when you're a service member. This goes to education and employment, Mm -hmm. financial and legal issues, uh, transition services, and mental health and wellness. Um, And so... The new shift that came into gear uh, under the NDAA when it was signed last week is that it takes it from six months as you're transitioning out to one year. So if you're a service member coming out of the service, you used to have access to Military OneSource for six months. Now you get it for a full year. If this sounds a little familiar, it should, um, because we've been talking about this probably since about January, uh, when it came out first as the idea within the executive order on transitioning service members and their mental health. And that came out specifically from the uh, vantage point of mental health and connecting service members with those resources and you know new veterans as they're in that one year period. But really there's a lot there that you can use for anything, even from like moving to your home loans to just finding out like what kind of diet you want to do or improving your health and wellness. Um, and that's now available for all transitioning service members for a year.
0: See, this is one of those things like I heard about it. I'm sure they talked about it in tap class, but I just kind of zoned out for most of that because most of what they were talking about just didn't affect me. I don't know that I ever signed up for it or used it. Do you think it's a valuable tool for people? Do you think that it's something? I mean, is it more based on advice or are there uh, discounts in there? Are there links to what you need to do when you're transitioning to get certain benefits that might be available to you?
1: So all of the above, right? It's kind of like this one-stop shop for all of your transition needs, um, and it's a website that connects you with all of those resources. Um, I do think it's really key to think of it as like an access point. So it's not going right. to have absolutely everything you're going to need right there, but it'll at least point you in the right direction or give you the tools that you need to take that next step. Um, it's really accessible, really easy to use. I mean, I've been scrolling through it as like a civilian on the outside taking a look at this. um, And I really would encourage everyone out there, even if you're just kind of in the community to take a look at it. It's a great resource.
0: And of course, you can just go and check it out. It's militaryonesource.mil, and I'm clicking on it right now just to see uh, what's available without logging in. As far as the information there, they have a toll free number that you can call. You know, they've got a, a number of things available just on the front page there, and then of course you're able to log in and use the stuff if you are a veteran. It used to be six months; now it's one year. Is this something that you've heard from the membership, as far as you know? they're they like it and they've used it, or or.
1: Not from IAVA members in particular, but what I will say is that we know IAVA members have told us again and again that they struggle in that transition time. 90% of IAVA members had some form of transition challenge, uh, whether that be financial, emotional, you know, even like physical, finding housing, things like that. Um, So we know it's an issue, and uh, certainly this is another resource that we can add to the books.
0: One of the things I see that pops into my eyes and and is something that I think a lot of people, particularly senior military members uh, who are eligible for this, will be interested in, the blended retirement system. They've got what you need to know about it. It even tells you how long it is to read this article, eight minutes. Now, if you don't have eight minutes to figure out what's the best retirement program for you, if you're one of the people who has to choose one way or the other, highly recommend that. And then there's categories listed on the site, confidential help, military life cycle, family and relationships, moving and housing, recreation, traveling. And- shopping, health and wellness, education and employment, financial and legal service providers and leaders. Boy, there's a lot going on there. And again, it's militaryonesource.mil. We're not affiliated with it in any way, but any website that I think can help people, it's a benefit to talk about it. And we're talking about it with Steph Mullen from IAVA. She is the research director over there uh, this is a subject that kind of goes right into your wheelhouse when it comes from RAND, and it's the RAND Report on Active Duty Health Outcomes and how it connects to veterans' health. What can you tell us about this uh, this this recent information that was released?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, numbers are my jam, as they say. <laughs> they do say
0: that. Everybody's <laughs> saying it.
1: <laughs> absolutely. It's going around town. <laughs> um, and so RAND put out a new study last week. Uh, it's actually from 2015 to 2016 is when the data was collected. But it's a 2015 health-related behavior survey. Uh, That's a big words, lots of words there. But we're just looking at what active-duty military uh, is feeling and thinking about their health. And so I think it's really important to look at this not only from the perspective of what is our active-duty military thinking and feeling right now, but also thinking about today's active-duty service members or tomorrow's veterans and what trends are we seeing between – even IVA members, the post-9-11 generation, and the currently serving right. active duty service members, which are still the post-9-11 generation, technically. Yeah.
0: Everybody will be from here on out. Do you know what some of the big-ticket items that people were, were focused on there as far as their health?
1: Yeah, so uh, they did a lot of, you know, looking at the different symptoms and different things that we talk about a lot in the veteran space. I'll just pull out a few. We talked; They talked about sleep, drinking, Um, mental health and suicide uh, and chronic pain and combat exposure, all of which are super uh, relevant to the veteran population. Uh, I think one of the things that I was most struck by was the sleep numbers. So Mm. they found that 56% or over half are getting less sleep than they need Mm. on a daily basis. Um, So what does that mean? That means that you're looking at poor performance for your active duty force that impacts readiness, but we also know that there's long-term health effects when we're talking about lack of sleep and it can even tie to your mental and physical health long term. We know there's a link between depression and lack of sleep. And we also know there's a link between sleep problems and PTSD. And so when you're looking at that 56%, I think about, you know, IAVA members where over 40% have depression or report that they have depression and over 46% report that they have uh, PTSD.
0: Mm. You know, Sleep is an issue. It's one of the things I've had issues with since I got out. It's not PTSD-related or anything like that, I don't think. I uh, had some insomnia issues when I first got out for a while. I took some sleeping pills for a while, and that kind of kind of helped, uh, helped me get into kind of a rhythm of sleeping. But still to this day, and I've been out. Well, no, seven years, almost exactly now. Actually, no, it was a little bit earlier than that. No, I get, no, it's 26th. Yeah, so almost seven years. Next week will be seven years out for me as I go through math in my mind. See, okay. this is why I can't be a pilot like we were talking about with Senator Baldwin. I'm not too good with the numbers as opposed to Steph Mullen. Numbers are her jam. They're not mine. No. <laughs> Words is my jam. That's why me use them good. Um, still to this day, like last night, I... Put my son to bed at 8. My wife's out of town, so it's just me and the little guy. Put him to bed at 8. Look up. Next thing I know, it's 1130 at night. And I've got to be up, uh, you know, before 5 a.m. to get in here, and and I'm like, I'm going to get five hours of sleep maximum now. And it's it's just kind of wanting to decompress and do my own thing where there aren't enough hours in the day to do that. Yesterday, my son got a new video game, Minecraft. I started playing Minecraft in my own uh, little world that I created there, and three hours just flew by before I realized it, sitting there by myself. This is an issue that has many different uh, aspects of it to consider, whether it's people just not having enough time, they're working really hard, want to get home, got stuff to do, whether it's real things that you need to do or playing a stupid video game like me, there are a lot of reasons that can cause people to uh, have a lack of sleep, a lack of the necessary sleep, and most people can't function on less sleep than you need to at the same level that they would if they were getting seven, eight hours of sleep a night. Some people, it's just not possible for many of us after we get out. uh, It is and it should be. Drinking is an interesting one, too, because, man, when I think back of my time in the military and consider some of the uh, consumption of alcohol that went on while I was in, it's mind-boggling to me these days. Like, I don't know if I would be able to ever recover from some of the things I did there. Is it more an issue, as we've seen that with this data, with the uh, those who have served or those who are serving? Is drinking getting better in the service?
1: So we've never asked IVA members about their drinking habits. Um, but I will say that the RAND report asked, and they said... Uh, Further um, basis, about one third of active duty service members could be considered binge drinkers.
0: Mm. And there are uh, there's a definition for that. It's like a certain number of drinks in a certain number of hours, uh, in a certain number of times a week. Uh, it's it's eh, alcohol affects people differently. Some people, if a guy's two hundred and fifty pounds and he's drinking six beers in a day, that's going to affect him differently than someone who's one hundred and ten pounds. So I it's 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 not a perfect measurement, but it's certainly mm-hmm. Not a great thing if you're doing that each and every day, no matter how big you are. It's certainly your liver won't appreciate it, whether your body uh, is able to make it through it or not. But I, I do believe we've seen recent stats that, that drinking overall is down in the military. Smoking is down in the military, even though the military smokes at a higher rate than the civilian population. Also drinks at a little bit higher rate than the civilian population. Um, th- this study addresses those things and other health issues. How about obesity? That's one that we've seen that's a problem. Uh, unfortunately, not just with the uh, post service fat guys like me, but now we're seeing more people within service who barely fit into their uniforms. Is that another one that they touched on, or did they not get into it too much?
1: They do. They do. They say about one third are normal rate or normal weight. Excuse me, um, but a majority of service members were classified as overweight or obese. But, again, you also have to keep in mind that uh, BMI is sort of an indirect measure of your yeah, body fat. Yeah, and the military
0: right? doesn't do it in a very good way either, but yeah. it's not very accurate. It could, what they do is called the rope and choke. Uh, to my knowledge, it's what they're still doing. They certainly did it for my 13 years in, uh, where they measure your waist. Uh, for This for males. For females, there's a different measurement. It's got the hips, the waist, and the neck, I think. For a male, it's they measure your waist, and they measure your neck. They subtract the number of your neck from the measurement of your waist and are like, that's your body fat percentage. And of course it's not. Some people have thicker necks than others. Some people have skinny necks. We had a guy uh, at one command who was a professional level weightlifter, had a neck like a chicken, just a little tiny neck and a huge waist, but was in fantastic shape, muscular, fat, uh, fast. He was muscular and fast. They told him he was muscular and fat basically because the measurement didn't add up. So I'll take that with a grain of salt. But the eye test when you look at military units I <laughs> I saw a military unit marching in a parade. Uh, I guess it was a little over a year ago and there were a couple sailors who I was like, "Oh my god, what just upgrade the uniform size dude. You look ridiculous." This is they, they don't make maternity uniforms for males, but this guy certainly could have used one, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, obesity is a problem in the American population oh, yeah. or at large, um even with, you know, children in our society. So I'm sure it is impacting um, the military community. And absolutely, I would say take that number with a grain of salt uh, because it does not account for, you know, the big beefy, muscular guys that are out there and the women B-boys. that are out there
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there are some people again that measurement is not perfect the only way to truly get it is actually it's a water submersion they submerge you in a water tank and then they're able to figure it out actually your actual body fat percentage um, i knew fat guys who had giant necks who they were fine they were they were mm-hmm. like oh yeah no you're fine and you'd look at them and you'd be like This guy looks like a bowling ball with feet. How is he fine? Just because he's got a giant, thick neck, and that helped him out. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thing that you've got going on there with how the military does it. I mean, they've still got people doing sit-ups, which is horrible for your back. Yet, there it is, still on the Navy PRT and all that good stuff. We're speaking with Steph Mullen from Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. You probably know it best as IAVA about a number of topics. And when you mention obesity, you know what? Uh, Just just a little off-topic here, but on the same topic— It's a problem for those serving, less of a problem for those in uniform than it is for those out of uniform. Certainly a problem with us guys who get out and just like, well, I don't have to PT anymore. I'm not going to. There's a lot of that going on. The biggest problem is for those who would like to serve. They're having Mm -hmm. huge problems making their recruiting goals because people are too fat. And there's a lot of other things. There's other health issues going on. There are uh, criminal issues going on. Too many people looking to enlist who have, you know, felony convictions in their past. You ain't getting in with a felony unless there's uh, some real interesting circumstances that allow for a waiver. That's very rare. The biggest problem is fat, obesity. Fat people, you know, you're not going to be able to get in and do any job, let alone get in and do uh, the special forces jobs. Which I was listening to an interview with uh, Tim Kennedy, who's been on the show several times. Part of the reason why he's still a Green Beret serving, um, he's not on active duty, but he is still an active Green Beret out of Texas, also does a lot of media stuff, he's got TV shows on Discovery, the Army doesn't necessarily love everything that Tim does, but they let him do it because it's good for recruiting, and man, do they need the help. Think about it, if people are too fat to get into the admin ratings in the military, do you think they might be too fat to go into special forces? Yeah, they're even even more hard up for people to go in and do these important jobs. So, yeah, it's a fascinating subject that has wide-ranging implications for those who have served, those who are serving, and those who would like to serve. And hopefully we're able to find out a way to uh, work our way through that. The NDAA signing. This came through... I think about as fast or faster than an NDAA signing has ever happened before. Uh, That's interesting. But of course, Steph Mullen, research director at IAVA and her organization, they're going to be more interested in some other aspects of it, not the speed, but what's included in it. So what can you tell us about the NDAA and some of the things that IAVA sees as good that were included in it?
1: So I'll first say you're correct in that this is the first time it was signed as early as it was in something like four decades so it's a good yeah. positive sign we're getting things on the right track. Um, I will also tie in, it's interesting, there was an increase in troop numbers across all the branches uh, for recruiting for next year. Mm-hmm. But as you're saying, uh, a lot of the branches have been struggling to meet those recruiting numbers. Big
0: time. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and a lot of it, as you said, you know, it has to do with uh, the young kids that are coming in that want to go into the military. And without a waiver, there's a very small percentage that can actually do so.
0: It's gotten worse. I worked in recruiting from 2005 to 2008, thank God, not as a recruiter. I was a public affairs officer. Because when uh, goal day came up, when they were doing like, last minute trying to get uh, get their numbers up, because the military doesn't have quotas in recruiting, they have goals. Mm-hmm. You know what a goal is? It's essentially a quota, although it's not, you know, it's not like if you don't meet that quota, you're out. But it kind of also is. So on goal day, you know, I got to go home at like 8 p.m. They were there until who knows when. Um, they had a lot of struggles with that. We were down in North Florida, South Georgia, and a part of South Carolina for a while was in our district. They had trouble getting enough people in 10 years ago and 13 years ago, it's gotten worse. So it's, you know, it's great that they've increased the, they've increased who, how many people they want in the military. But if there are, let's use some job, uh, bull riders, if there are, 40 people that you need to hire for bull riders and only 35 people uh, each year coming on. And you say, well, great. Well, now we want 50. Guess what? You still only got 35 people who are eligible for that job. So it's, it's good that they're looking, in my opinion anyway, to expand the military a little bit. But who's going to do it? I mean, I'm not going back in. And at this point, I'd have the same problem as a lot of those kids coming out of high school weighing 215 uh, are. It's certainly an issue uh, that will it bears watching where le- you can't legislate like fitness into people. So yeah, yeah it's kind of crazy, but okay. So beyond the expansion of the recruiting numbers, what are we also uh, looking at?
1: We got 2.6 pay raise uh, for all of those in uniform. So that's a really good sign. Um, also just, you know, a great note as you're looking at retention and readiness and all the things that we're talking about here. Um, everyone likes a little pay raise, Yeah, but uh, we do have some wins on IV's big six priorities, uh, most of which I want to just highlight our burn pit stuff. Um, there is a provision in there uh, that tells pe- that has the DOD and VA looking at its burn pit stuff. So on the DOD side, assessing whether uh, it can use get rid of burn pits or do a little study on that. Um, and then on the other side, it's telling people uh, what their options are for registering in the burn pit registry and doing an educational program on that side. So both are really great signs. Um, Of course, the burn pits um, momentum is going to continue, and there's lots to do on that side, but uh, it's good to see some. Little steps being taken.
0: There are legislative steps being sta- being taken. IAVA was heavily involved with the uh, bipartisan legislation introduced by two members of Congress who both served in the Army. Uh, former EOD technician Brian Mast, who now represents a district down in Florida. Uh, of course, very well known. He lost both of his legs to an IED-NF. Uh, I believe Afghanistan is where it happened. Um, he and Tulsi Gabbard, who, of mm-hmm. course, is from Hawaii and serves in the uh, the National Guard uh, served in the National Guard. there There's legislation moving in that way, but there's things that they can do until the legislation gets through to improve the process, and that's what this is about with the NDAA?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, about reaching out to those vets that can register but maybe haven't done so yet. Uh, so, for example, there's about 150,000 uh, people that have registered on the VA's burn pit registry. It's up to 3.5 million that can. That's a wide gap of people that can register but haven't yet. And so it's about reaching those people and how can you best and most effectively do that.
0: The NDAA is a huge document. It covers a lot of things. I mean, it's a massive budget that they've got. It's what, $800 billion or whatever it is overall. Um Where can people go to find like the the keynotes of it or where can they go to actually read the whole thing if they're into it?
1: Yeah. Congress.gov. If you search, you know, National Defense Authorization Act 2019, you're going to find it. Uh, We also have a blog up from our legislative director, Tom Porter, uh, the one and only that you can find on iavaorg slash blog.
0: Legislation is his jam, although that's not as catchy as numbers being your jam. And we're speaking to someone who indeed they are, Steph Mullen, Research Director from IAVA. Speaking of blogs at IAVA, uh, you mentioned to me earlier, Melissa Bryant has one up, and it's about the kind of rollback of government watchdogging of the predatory lenders. As I mentioned to you off air, I remember being at NOB in Norfolk, the big Navy base there, You walked out through the gate and there was just about a mile and a half of car dealerships and other people looking for those young sailors' uh, paychecks every month and getting them pretty regularly. When it comes to the government essentially saying like, hey, we're not going to be doing uh, these uh, inspections on them, at least not doing them on all of them unless a complaint is filed is kind of uh, how it sounded to me anyway. How is IAVA looking at this, this rollback of checking on those predatory lenders who target sailors, soldiers, Marines, and airmen?
1: Yeah, so I'll start by saying uh, Melissa Bryan, our chief policy officer, wrote a great blog on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's rollback of just what you were saying, um, and it connects to the Military Lending Act. So instead of going out and proactively looking for these predatory lenders, uh, now they're going to put the onus really on veterans and their families to bring these lenders forward, and then they'll take the case and look through it. Um, It's really important to note that uh, service members are four times more likely to be targeted by predatory lending. So, uh, this is a big issue for the community, um, but I think the bigger issue is that this is couched in rollbacks overall to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. In May, we saw the Student Loan Protection Office will be closing. And then just last month, I think the last time I was in, we talked about uh, DOD changing up the transferability within the GI bills. This is all just like little attacks on education benefits and really veteran benefits as a whole. as a whole, um, and the government protection surrounding it. So uh, what I would say is IAVA is not only trying to keep our membership informed, we're trying to make sure that people know that this stuff is happening and to keep an eye on it, but we do have a couple of petitions out uh, specifically around the GI Bill uh, transferability changes that happened, and you can find that on our website um, and also on change.org.
0: You know, young soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, They have a monthly paycheck coming from the government. It makes them very attractive to people who... uh work in industries where having someone able to make those payments every month is going to make their life easier, even if those people are a bit predatory. I mean, that's that's what they do. You know, there are a lot of there's a conflict within me where I kind of want the onus to be on the individual and say like, listen, you're being told, and I guarantee you, any base where they've got that strip of car dealerships and all those things outside, they're being told when they get there, do not buy a car from these people. Some of them are still going to do it. I mean, sometimes you have to learn the hard way. At the same time, you're also talking in, in general about younger people who may never have had that monthly paycheck coming in and got that money burning a hole in their pocket. Maybe a little extra protection isn't a bad thing. I I don't know. But that's what uh, Congress is going to be looking at, and that's what the administration is going to be looking at. And as they are, IAVA will be keeping an eye on them. We want to thank Steph Mullen, Research Director for IAVA, for joining us on the morning briefing today. She just mentioned their website a few times. Of course, the main website for IAVA, iava iava.org. Also, thanks to Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin for joining us today. Really fascinating and interesting legislation that she's got to help out veterans. A lot of veterans up there in Wisconsin, and a lot of them are having success. Some of them are struggling, and she wants to help all of us uh, do our best in doing it in a bipartisan way with Senator Tom Tillis and others co-sponsoring uh, some of those acts that she talked about today. So our thanks to the senator, and thank you for listening to The Morning Briefing, Monday edition. Eric Dame and Jake Hughes will be back tomorrow.